Good evening uh, to you all and welcome to another Ralph Miliband lecture. Um, I think we're well over the 100 mark now, but what distinguishes this lecture is the beginning of a new, as it were, academic season in which we'll be exploring issues to do with the restructuring of world power, the changing balance of power, exploring the extent to which economic power is drifting to the east, the implications of that, not just in economic terms, but in political terms. And in this respect, it's a great uh, honor and privilege and also great fun for me, since I've known her very well, to welcome Mary Woods here uh, to speak on the theme that is there in front of you on international economic organizations, the restructuring of world power, expiring or expanding, question mark. Nairi is Professor of International Political Economy and Director of the Global Economic Governance Program at University uh, College Oxford. Just very briefly, she received her BA in Economics and LLB Honours in Law from Auckland University, then studied at Balliol College Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar, gaining an MPhil and a DPhil. After having a junior fellowship there in Oxford, at New College Oxford, she taught at Harvard University in the Government Department before taking up a permanent fellowship at University College Oxford. She chairs a, an impressive array of, uh, is the member of an impressive array of bodies. Among them, I'll just mention a few, the Global Council on International Re on Institutional Reform of the World Economic Forum. She's also a board member and or advisor of the IMF's European Department Advisory Group, the Overseas Development Institute, and the Human, uh, UN Human Development Report, among many others. And indeed, also, she's an editor on the editorial board of numerous scholarly journals, including our own here newly launched Global Policy. And if you don't know about Global Policy, I will plug it briefly. You should go to globalpolicyjournal.com. That's one word. Globalpolicyjournal.com, one word. And someone has recently said about this website, and it was, I thought it was very flattering. They said, your website is so sexy, you ought to have to register somewhere that you're 18 to proceed further. Not bad for a journal on policy issues. Anyway, to get back, of course, to our speaker. In addition to holding all these posts, she's written or edited many books, among them most recently, The Politics of Global Regulation, Networks of Influence, Developing Countries in a Networked Global Order, Making Self-Regulation Effective in Developing Countries, Exporting Good Governance, and the globalizers, the IMF, the World Bank, and their borrowers. Tonight she speaks on a very crucial issue, as I've already said, and I very much look forward, as I always do, to hearing what she has to say. She's crossed many time zones, not necessarily just to get here, but she has crossed many time zones to be here. And uh, uh, please, therefore, join with me in giving her a particularly warm welcome. Well, thank you. Thank you, David, and um, thank you to the LSE. It's an honour to take part in this lecture series, named after Ralph Miliband. And I think it's particularly relevant that David and his colleagues are putting on a series under Ralph Miliband's name on the restructuring of um, global governance and the restructuring of world power. I think Ralph Miliband's reflections on the relationship between capitalism and the state which we might, in a more contemporary parlance, call the relationships between private sector and governments, is an incredibly important one, and one that people 
in different ways and in different philosophical strands are moving back to in the wake of the financial crisis. I say that coming directly now from the annual meetings of the IMF and the World Bank, which are accompanied, of course, by the annual meetings of the International Institute of Finance and the Global Financial Institutions and Banks. And I think in those meetings, what is becoming incredibly clear is a strong clash between public and private sector, a real concern in the public sector about the extent of the private sector's influence, and these are issues on which Ralph Miliband reflected deeply. So there's three things I'd like to do in this lecture tonight. Um, the first is really to do a state of global economic cooperation. Where are we in global economic cooperation? Um, when I was asked for a title um, for this lecture and I wondered about whether expiring or expanding described what's happening to institutions. I guess I was thinking about the fact that while some people were saying global governance is expanding, we've now got the G20, it's creating new institutions like the Financial Stability Board, we're seeing existing <laughs> institutions seize new mandates, so global governance is expanding, whilst others were saying, no, no, actually global governance is expiring. The crisis um, has so closely associated global governance with the negative side of globalization that other countries are going to turn back in. We're going to see host regulation. We're going to see a more nationalized form of capitalism moving forward. And I think it's worth, as a very um, sort of applied way of thinking through that, it's worth just looking at, well, what is happening in global cooperation? And for the purposes of the lecture, I'm going to define cooperation quite narrowly, not to mean cooperation on a wide range of things, but rather to mean cooperation in the sense of the necessary coordination or cooperation among governments if any one government is to achieve its preferred goals. So I'm going to talk about, in particular, four areas um, in which no individual government can achieve its goals unless it can persuade other governments to cooperate or coordinate. So the first thing I'll do is a, a, a review of where we're at on global economic cooperation. The second thing I'd like to do in this lecture is to draw out some political economy lessons about institutions. So here I'm going to offer a different way of evaluating institutions. One way of evaluating institutions, which David Held has um, done so eloquently, is on a principle basis, a normative basis, to set out normative principles and to adjudicate whether institutions measure up to those normative principles. And in, I'll offer a different, complementary way of looking at institutions, which is a, a political economy approach, which says, if this is how we structure institutions, are they likely to be captured by the private sector at the global level? And if we don't want them to be captured by small groups of interests, what would the institutions have to look like? And then I'll finish with some reflections on what this means about the, the international economic organizations um, that are at the forefront of managing the fallout of the international financial crisis. 
So those are the three tasks. I think one of the arguments that I'd like to put to you tonight is that the shift in world power, the rise of emerging economies, has forced open the doors of economic decision-making bodies. That's why the G7 has transmogrified into the G20. That's why there's a sharp debate at the moment about seats and votes in the IMF and in the World Bank. That's why the WTO negotiations are stalled. The newcomers are banging at the door. And some of them, and in some cases, they've successfully got through the door and are sitting at the table. And I'm going to argue, one of the arguments, as I said, that I, I would make tonight is that the entry of those emerging economies, who on the whole are very state-centered economies, whose economic sectors are differently weighted than ours, actually results in giving more voice to many groups in our own societies. So the simplest form of this argument is that the industrialized countries with large open financial sectors have tended in the international economic <coughs> negotiations to represent their global financial sectors, not their small national financial firms, but their global, their large financial firms, financial services firms with global interests. Emerging economies now sitting at those tables, China, Brazil, India, South Africa, are much better at representing, for example, industry, are much better at representing other interests in the economy. And if there's one thing the financial crisis of 2008 showed, it's that when the financial sector fails, it's all parts of the economy, its workers, its firms, it's all different industries that suffer. What's interesting in the wake of the crisis is that the interests of you all as workers or as workers in industries other than the financial sector are on the whole being represented much more strongly by emerging economy governments than by your own industrialized country governments for those of you who are citizens of European or, or North American governments. And I think that's, that's a very interesting for me outcome of the shift that we're seeing in the global institutions. So let's move now to what the current state um, of the economy is so I can take some of these, what you might think are wild generalizations and um, focus them down onto what's actually happening. So the, probably the most visible change in global governance that people uh, point to is the advent of the G20 group at leaders level. I've just come from Washington DC with watching long debates between those who argue that the G20 is a subversive, um, destructive, anti-UN move in global governance, um, and though, because they're contrasting it to their ideal, which is a United Nations-based sort of economic security council. And those who see the G20, and I think I probably fall slightly more into this camp, and those who see the G20 as an expansion of the G7. And I think the former group underestimate the role the G7 finance ministers group has played over the last three decades. That the G7 finance ministers group and informal grouping has quietly behind the scenes been a constant in every crisis source of coordination among powerful industrialized countries. 
and as such it's delivered instructions to the IMF in every crisis until the recent period and it's coordinated the policies of those countries. So it's never been a formal international organisation, it's been an agenda setting organisation and in a way it's been the conductor of the orchestra, always hidden behind walls. And if we look at a history of international organisations, we find that actually usually that is the case. There is usually an informal group of powerful countries that are playing an agenda-setting role and playing conductor of the orchestra. So what the G20's done is, in a way, I think, expanded that group, expanded that agenda-setting and group that conducts the orchestra. But the trajectory of the G20 has been an interesting one. And so there's two questions that I think are, are, are good to pose about the G20. One is, is it becoming more or less powerful? Is it here to stay or is it just a crisis committee that will fade? And the second is, has allowing the emerging economies to come to the table actually made a difference? Do, can we see the difference in the outcomes of the G20 statements? So on the first, we see that the G20 started as a crisis committee. It met in November 2008 in Washington, and then in London 2009. It made a lot of powerful, coordinated decisions. It created 250 billion of SDRs. It coordinated the response of industrialized countries. They came together with joint statements on growth, joint statements on avoiding protectionism. There's quite a lot of evidence that they actually acted upon those statements. So the first phase of the G20, um, took, its trajectory took it up to this seeming you know, point of quite a lot of coordination, at which point everybody started saying, this is the new holy grail of global governance. What we need now to do is to institutionalize the G20. Given that it's so successful, we need to build a secretariat, we need to formalize it, we need to let the G20 run the world economy. And of course they're wrong because what they're underestimating is that the, what, they're, well, what they're missing is the fact the G20 could operate as a crisis committee, the fact that it could do those two things so quickly, set the new agenda orchestrate the other organizations was precisely because it did not have a secretariat, it didn't have formal decision-making rules, it had no formal authority to make decisions. And that meant it could be pulled together very fast, make very quick decisions, operate as a crisis committee. It also means what it couldn't do then and what it can never do is actually implement and monitor and enforce those decisions. And that's where it's played a role calling on others to do those jobs. In other words, orchestrating the IMF, the WTO, UNCTAD, the OECD, the ILO, um, the BIS, the, I mean, a whole series, the alphabet soup of international organizations, which are now all reporting to the G20. But after those first two summits, we then saw the G20 wane very quickly. So what happened? in the interim. Why did the G20 take off on this trajectory, fill everybody with great hope and enthusiasm about global governance through the G20, and then seem to sort of sink into a kind of oblivion in Pittsburgh and then in Toronto? Um, the Koreans are now trying to do sort of intensive, life-saving um, <laughs> surgery on the G20 so that they can host a successful meeting in a couple of weeks. 
Well, let's look at the four issues that the G20 was, has taken as its core agenda and say, well, where have they got to? Which organizations are working on them? What does this tell us about global governance? So the first major set of actions was about growth, ensuring, growth, ensuring the global economy does not go into a deep recession. And it started well on that. Did this great big global stimulus through SDRs by producing $500 billion worth of new financing for the fund to use, by coordinating stimulus measures across the various economies. But then, in essence, you saw Greece have a financial crisis. A financial crisis that meant that Greece lost its access to capital markets and spread a, f a wave of fear across European Union governments. What was their fear? Their first fear in Germany and France was for their own banks who were overexposed in Greece. So they needed to bail out their own banks. Second fear is that if Greece went, others would go, that Spain, Ireland and Portugal would be it, uh, next. And, and possibly Britain. And that this would put such strain on the euro that the euro itself might collapse. So the Greece crisis threw into question and turned upside down the idea that Europe would coordinate stimulus packages with the United States, with China, and with other emerging economies. And the leaders who turned up to the Toronto summit of the G20 were very divided. Um, those who look at the details point out that although Germany was talking big austerity, its package was no, not as austere as it was claiming, and that although President Obama was talking big stimulus, his package was no near, nowhere near as stimulant as he was claiming. But the philosophical difference is there. And it's dividing Europe, not just from the United States, where there is itself a lively debate, but very much with the emerging economies, who are saying, so you guys are going to do austerity and expect us to be the sole engines of growth. Um, that's the way uh, they see that issue. So we see a G20 utterly divided now on the issue of coordinating growth. A happier story is in trade protectionism, where in the immediate aftermath of the crisis, a lot of countries made first attempts to introduce some kind of non-WTO-compliant trade protectionist measure. But what the G20 did is get the WTO, the OECD, the ILO together, sorry, UNCTAD, together to start reporting to the G20 on protectionist measures. And the reports are worth looking at, because on the front of the report, they very clearly state, this report has absolutely no significance. It doesn't mean we think you're breaking the rules necessarily. It doesn't have any, it doesn't alter your membership duties. It doesn't alter your standing in any organization. And yet, it's turned out that it really matters. When G20 leaders arrive at each summit, it really matters that they're not on the blacklist. So actually, the monitoring of protectionism, I think, has actually been one of the more successful things that the G20 has done to date. It's going to be under more pressure now um, as countries become more desperate. 
Also within the growth agenda, of course, and the, the issue that dominated the annual meetings of the, certainly the press coverage of the annual meetings of the IMF and World Bank this year was the so-called currency wars and exchange rates. And here we've seen an unfortunately loud public debate between the United States and China. The United States calling on China to appreciate its currency. Um, and China arguing that you cannot talk about exchange rates in isolation. So China's response to this U.S. call, which, and in this the U.S. is joined more quietly by many other uh, trading countries who would like to see China appreciate its currency. But the Chinese view, which, to which other emerging economies are very sympathetic, even those who would also like to see China appreciate, is that China is facing three transitions of its own. It's facing a domestic transition, towards dealing with huge domestic inequalities. The poorest part of China is as poor as Namibia. The wealthiest part is as wealthy as Portugal. China has a huge transition to make, as its leadership sees, in working out how to deal with those inequalities in new ways. It's also got a transition in its financial sector and banking sector. It has begun very slowly to open up banking and finance to the rest of the world. It's trying to manage that transition. And then its exchange rate. It's already shifted to a floating but managed rate. It's trying to manage that transition without causing political or economic chaos within its borders. So China's argument is that the exchange rate debate can't take place without being set in the rest of this context. And China's also saying you can't, on the one hand, ask us to do this massive appreciation on, and, on the other, expect us to consent to being the engine of growth for you while you undertake austerity measures. So the, the debate is a very sharp one, and on that issue, like on the stimulus measures, there is very little agreement. But the difference is that on the exchange rate issue, there is actually an international mechanism that we're seeing take for, taken forward and it's a mechanism that didn't work. We all thought it was rubbish. It was, it was a multilateral consultation process within the IMF, which nevertheless, and institutions have this funny way of putting old mechanisms in the cupboard, which in a crisis can sometimes be pulled out and used, and is now being pulled out to fashion a quiet conversation out of the limelight between China, the United States, and others about what a way forward on this vexed issue of the exchange rate might be. So on the growth agenda, the G20 is very split, and the only place where we're continuing to see agreement is on trade protectionism. The second issue on the G20 agenda, or a second issue, is development cooperation, which has been voiced and virtually nothing's happened on it. Emerging economies have been pretty much silent on it until now. And it's the one thing that Korea is trying to change. In two weeks' time, when Korea hosts the G20, they're trying to put development and a different view of development right to the top of the agenda. And their argument is that we need a development agenda that goes beyond the Millennium Development Goals, that goes beyond addressing poverty. 
And in this, they reflect an emerging economy and developing country view. There's considerable agreement with their view among the African governments who have been um, playing into the G20 process. And that view is that the, the approach that industrialized countries have taken to development assistance is one which leaves developing countries dependent on the endless charity of industrialized countries that when you provide money for HIV-AIDS treatment to a poor country and there's no sustainable strategy for how that country is going to end up being able to pick up that bill itself, it's a form of dependence that they would rather see more active measures to overcome. And that's what the emerging economies are speaking to in developing countries when they put development on the agenda. They're saying we need to come back to a serious agenda of economic growth, of building infrastructure, of building the roads that make it possible for smallholder farmers to bring their produce to market or to bring it to ports, etc. We know the debate about infrastructure and growth. And even in Korea, that's causing a furore with the development NGOs in Korea saying, no, this is back to old-fashioned you know, trickle-down theories that... Um, that ignore the poor and development um, proponents saying no, this is about helping countries stand on their own feet and lift their own people out of poverty. And I, I expect if the currency war doesn't re-emerge, I think we'll see a lot on this development debate in the G20. Why should the G20 be taking up this issue? I think there is one very good reason and that's that the development cooperation world has, is one that is very split. On one side, we see the OECD DAC members, the industrialized countries, some, some would call them traditional donors, who do aid their way. They've taken forward the MDGs, the Millennium Development Goals. They've put poverty at the top of the agenda. That's the way that they're seeing development assistance. They're working to coordinate, well, they're working to talk about coordinating their aid efforts. And on the other side, in a completely separate universe, are China, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Brazil, emerging donors who are now giving more and more, giving larger and larger packages of assistance. And in China's case, almost always packaged with investment, trade, and commercial deals. And until now, there's really been no place for a conversation between equals. There's been a lot of Western statements about what China should do or shouldn't do in its development assistance, to which the Chinese reaction is, if you're just going to lecture us, we'll just keep doing it our own way. And I think the G20 is an interesting forum where, for the first time, emerging economies have an opportunity to sit, at least in theory, as equal partners and to have a conversation about development assistance, which could find areas for cooperation and coordination. And there are issues in development assistance that need cooperation and coordination. And we saw that in the immediate aftermath of the financial crisis, where because of this division of the aid world and because of the fragmentation of institutions, we saw a lot of aid head to some countries that suffered from the financial crisis and almost none at all to some of the very poorest countries that desperately needed assistance.
in the wake of the crisis. So cooperation is needed. It hasn't happened, but it might well, we might see the beginning of a dialogue in Korea in two weeks. The third issue on the G20 agenda is institutional reform itself. Reforming the IMF, reforming the World Bank. I'm happy to talk about that in questions and answers. Um, I, I just want to say at the moment that I think there's two things to look for in this debate. The one that everybody's looking at is the debate about who gets a bigger vote and who gets a seat on the board of these organizations. And people are also looking at the headship of these organizations. And those things are all important. But the other question that very few people look at that's equally important of any international organization is who controls resources. And in a separate paper that I'm working on at the moment with a colleague, we're looking at that issue and at the subtle way in which countries are beginning to ostensibly put money into international organizations whilst meanwhile entirely controlling those pots of money. So it's a kind of fake multilateralism. And that's, a very, that's becoming a more and more important question to ask. So in the IMF, we see it in the way in which they responded to the crisis. They said, we've got, we've got, the IMF now has $500 billion that it can use to expand its lending. But actually, that was not a quota increase in the fund. That was not an expansion of the IMF's core resources. That was simply temporary credit lines from a group of countries who agreed to extend credit lines and that group of countries agreeing to extend credit lines control the use of those credit lines. And those distinctions become quite important when we're asking, are we really seeing cooperation? Or are we seeing something slightly less than cooperation in these institutions? Now let me move to the fourth, um, the fourth item on the G20 agenda, because I'd like to spend a moment on this. And in this area, this is where I would just, I think it really highlights why we might want a new analytical framework for measuring institutions against. And that's financial regulation. And the performance of the G20 on financial regulation is perhaps the most disappointing trajectory at all, of all. So November 2008, under tremendous popular pressure, the leaders come up with a work plan which ostensibly commits them to ensuring that financial regulation happens fast, is robust, has enough global backing and enough national implementation to mean that we will reduce the risks of a financial crisis occurring again and therefore reduce the risk that so much public money has to go in not just to bailing out the banks but to dealing with all the collateral damage of the crisis including the ongoing costs in every industrialized country of keeping interest of their central banks keeping interest rates low and using quantitative easing. A policy which of course has hugely benefited the financial sector itself. That's why we've seen such a rebound of banks to profitability. They can now access credit incredibly cheaply and they can now invest it in Brazil and make a considerable yield. And the consequence of that is first a political consequence in Britain and in the United States and in France and in Germany, which is the banks have re-secured not just their economic position, but a lot of political power. 
The consequence globally is that emerging economies are now feeling under considerable strain as a result of the policies of industrialized countries. So emerging economies are looking at Britain, at Europe, at North America and saying, you're combining austerity measures, which mean you're relying on us to be the engine of growth, with quantitative easing, with printing money, low interest rates, which your banks are then sending across our borders, the carry trade. And that's putting our policies under extreme pressure. So the, the global dimension of that combination of policies is sharpening the conflict within the G20. Now, what's the, so how do, we, how do we come at this? If we look at the Basel Agreement that's just been made, which regulators would say they've got right, what they've done is they've hugely increased the capital and liquidity requirements on banks. In essence, they're saying to the banks, you know, you'll have to insure yourselves, and you'll have to insure yourselves by meeting these requirements. However, you don't have to start meeting those requirements for a few years. At the same time, the other two issues that have been on the agenda, how you deal with institutions that are too big to fail, the systemically important institutions, which will always be bailed out with public money unless an alternative plan is, um, emerges, has not been dealt with nor the shadow banking issue. So we've still not seen any proposals come forward to the G20 on either of those issues. Why should we worry? Why should we worry about this? I think if we, if we come at it from straight politics and we ask the banks in a frank moment in the bar, what's your strategy? The answer is a very clear strategy. We want to dilute the reform proposals we want to postpone compliance with the new standards. We want to get our message out to the public that regulating us will have harmful consequences. So witness the PricewaterhouseCoopers report that came out earlier this year saying that if you did apply the Basel III requirements, we would suffer, what was the figure they gave? Was it four a full 2% reduction in growth? which, of course, once the official sector actually did the maths far more carefully, they discovered was actually, more accurately, 0.04% per annum potential reduction in growth. So, and of course, the other, the fourth strategy of the banks is to find new ways to, um, new opportunities or as onlookers, we might say new ways to avoid or subvert the regulation that's oncoming. Now, what all that suggests to us, if we take those four elements of the bank strategy, which for them is quite clear, then the fact that we now have a long transition period for new requirements in Basel is very serious. Because you can either see the transition period as a logical response to not wanting to push our economies into recession. Or you can see it as simply giving the banks a much longer time in which to work out their strategy of further diluting the proposals, of further avoiding compliance. And to me that's why 
It's that question about which way we should look at it that leads me to ask, what, what, what analytical framework can we ask or can we bring to this issue to say how likely is it that the right trade-offs are being made? And so, here, and so here I'd like to turn to the framework that my colleague Walter Mackley and I propose in our book on the politics of global regulation. And I think it has interesting crossovers for the other institutions I've mentioned tonight. Because we began with the question, what is it that permits narrow vested interests to capture policy? And our answer, it's not just our answer, it's an answer that you can derive from reading across the economics literature on regulatory capture, is that four things entrench that kind of capture. The first is information, or the hidden information. The fact that people don't know what the costs of poor regulation are, or that only some people know the costs and others don't. And again, we saw this writ large in this battle where the PricewaterhouseCoopers report on behalf of Barclays, HSBC and RBS came out making this huge statement about the negative consequences of regulation. And it took about three months for the public sector to bring out a report which hugely undercut the claims of the private sector report. So information really matters. Whose information is out there in the public domain available to those who would mobilize if they were aware that their interests were in jeopardy? But it's not enough. Information's not enough because information might tell you that you will suffer, but you might have no way of forming a coalition with others who will suffer that's powerful enough to have your voice heard in the regulatory debate. So there we move to the second, which is interests. And in particular, what entrenches capture is where, and it's Olson's argument, well known to all of you who are political scientists, that small groups who have concentrated interests and large incentives to shape the regulation will be far more effective than the rest of us who are just taxpayers paying, paying for the bailout and the cleanup, but who don't have the same vested interest. And that's why when you speak to the banks, they have such a clear and clearly formed strategy. They have a huge interest in having that strategy. And why when you go and speak to parliamentarians and regulators, you find them extremely confused about what the strategy should be. There's no correlate to the clarity, information and resources that are there in the private sector, in the private financial sector. The third thing that entrenches capture is the, the way the institution works. Is the institution closed and secretive? Do we know what goes on inside it? Because if it is closed and secretive, it doesn't mean that it's only public sector regulators that are in the room. And I'm, I'm going to come back to that when I talk about how you overcome these issues. And the fourth is, of course, ideas. And to what extent a set of ideas justify a particular regulatory framework. So these are the four things that you've got to overcome and that your institution needs to overcome if you're going to move towards financial regulation that works. And what I'm interested in is what that looks like in global governance. What does that mean if we're going to have a global reinforcement of financial regulation? 
So first, it does mean, first on information, it means we need much clearer, more timely and accurate information. It was politically disastrous that the, this finding about growth came so late in the debate. By then, the banks had already successfully pushed the transition periods argument. But we are seeing some recent reforms on this. We're seeing the IMF, the G20, um, begin to use more monitoring to make it public, to put information into the public domain. It needs to be happening faster. What we're not seeing, and this takes me to the institutions part of the puzzle, is an opening up of the institutions. And here, I think, is the biggest failing in financial regulation at the global level. It's the fact that the institutions trying to do it, the BIS, the Bank for International Settlements, the Financial Stability Board, are clinging to a central bank culture of secrecy. Try ringing the BIS and asking them when the, when the next Basel committee meeting is that's going to decide on financial regulation. And they won't tell you. It's confidential information. You're not allowed to know when the Basel committee will meet. But ring Deutsche Bank and ask them when the Basel committee is meeting, and ask them what the agenda is, and ask them what the background papers for that committee meeting are saying. And of course, they do have it. And so here, there's an interesting parallel I want to draw on institutions, because there is a transformation that's occurred in a different institution, in the IMF, over the last decade. And it's been a transformation in transparency. It's IMF board meetings are now minuted, and the minutes are available. You do know when people are meeting. The annual meetings have been opened up to outsiders to come along to, to watch, to participate, to listen. The, the, the funds, statements of policy, mandates, the working papers, the preparatory work, is now on the web. Now, we could say, well, there's still stuff they're not publishing. That's true. But what I'm pointing to is that the, that the IMF has undergone quite a revolution in transparency. And that that revolution, I think we're seeing, along with a couple of other features, give it a more balanced role in this debate on financial regulation. And it's that kind of transparency that the BIS and the FSB now desperately need. Put simply, the central bank governors and regulators who are sitting in behind closed doors in relatively secret negotiations in Basel are leaving themselves behind the, the bike shed ready to be bullied by the financial sector. They need to move themselves into the sunshine and into the public debate so that, they, so that the information flow is better and so that the coalitions who will support the right kinds of regulation have more access to them. What do those coalitions look like? Is this just me naively hoping that we'll all leap up and suddenly become expert in banking regulation? No. I think there are five groups, five potential coalitions that should be right engaged in this debate and that would bring a different set of stakes to the table. The, the, well, the obvious groups are, of course, the regulators themselves, and there we're seeing, as I mentioned at the beginning of the lecture, regulators from emerging economies pushing for better regulation. So that's a positive step in my view. The second set of potentially powerful lobbyists for better regulation 
are private actors themselves. And I think this, I actually think there will be no effective financial sector regulation unless other important economic actors become involved in the debate and in the enforcement of it. Because it's industry and other parts of the financial sector itself that suffered from the crisis. So we can think about this as we do in our, in our book. First as corporate consumers, the, the corporations who relied on banks who suffered from the crisis and what their interest is in averting another one. We can think about corporate newcomers, new competitors into the financial sector who want to see a regulatory regime which opens up more space for them. We can see corporations at risk who really suffered in the crisis and need a new regulatory regime to restore some credibility. And then, of course, there's global competitors. And they, they were very obvious in the first report the banking sector produced after the crisis, saying if there is going to be any regulation, please let's make it global so that we don't suffer more because we're American and the American government decides to regulate us more. In that event, we'd like all countries to have to regulate in the same way so that we don't suffer a disadvantage. In other words, my message, my positive message is that actually all of those interests, if they were marshaled into the debate on financial regulation, would produce a more balanced outcome. And that's why institutions matter. That's why it really matters whether these obscure institutions are open. That's why it matters whether they disseminate information. That's why it matters who they invite to deliberate, to comment, to respond to proposals, and who they mobilize. So in conclusion, I've taken you through a G20 agenda of growth, of development, of institutional reform, and of financial regulation. And I haven't really answered the question that I put to you in my title about whether we're seeing institutions expire or expand. So let me come to that now. Because we can see that what's happening certainly is certain kinds of expansion. We've seen the, the G20 as an expansion from the G7. And it's playing an important role. It's got all these other institutions reporting to it, and there's clearly some kinds of peer pressure that are working across the G20. We see that in trade. We've seen it in these mutual assessments. We might see it in financial market supervision, I hope. But at the same time, when we look at the G20, we see first a parallel with its predecessor, the G20 finance ministers, which don't forget we've already had for 10 years. The G20 finance ministers was created in 1997. And what we saw happen with that group was that in its first two years it was a crisis committee and it pretty much was a rubber stamping group for G7 ideas and proposals. So the communiques of the group were pretty much exactly what the G7 was saying. And then we saw it sort of slip into a general conversation group where they did things like compare responses to globalization. And we saw it slip away from the G7. It stopped being aligned with the G7, but it also stopped being very relevant. Its moment as a crisis committee sort of disappeared away. 
And I think in a way we're seeing a little bit of that in the G20. The crisis committee moment has been suspended. Although my hunch, and we can talk about this in questions, is that it is just a suspension and that there is so much fragility in the global economy at the moment that we're likely to see the G20 stay as a crisis committee. And that, of course, is very worrying to small countries in the world. The so-called G192, no, G172, I guess, who are not part of the G20. All those other countries who are not being included and who are saying, well, what about us? You're making decisions that we don't even hear about, let alone have a voice over. And we're starting to see those groups organized. Singapore is now leading a group called the 3G of small open economies to try to have one voice. The G20 itself is taking that up. So in Korea, we're going to see quite a few representatives of the African Union, of ASEAN, so an attempt to kind of widen the representation of the group. So in the G20, we're seeing a slight suspension in its effectiveness, a real concern beginning about how to represent the wider group, and a sense, I think, by everybody that the crisis committee is still needed. So it's expanding, and I don't think it's expiring. I just think it's stopped to take a bit of a breath. Well, as the um, crisis has seemed slightly to recede. The IMF, meanwhile, I think is on the brink of expanding slightly in a real way. The big expansion of the London G20 summit, as I said, was temporary, but I think the IMF is going to see its core capital doubled. It's going to see continuing very slow but, and, 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 and partial reforms, but that are important. And it's going to be very important in implementing quite a lot of what the G20 are trying to do. So I, th I see the IMF certainly not expiring, but gradually, more gradually than it seems, expanding its resources, its representation, and its mandate. And then the, finally, the other institution that I was talking about, the Financial Stability Board and the BIS, the Financial Stability Board is the new organization that the G20 created, which is supposed to be leading financial regulation. And I think, and it's relying on the Basel Committee, which is part of the BIS. And as I said here, although we've, been, we've seen an ostensible expansion in global governance, neither of these institutions is universal. And here we have a real problem because they're not, we're not talking about an informal agenda-setting body. And this is where I'd just like to finish, which is to really underline the difference between the G20, an informal agenda-setting group without authority that operates as a crisis committee, and the kind of institution that you need if you're actually going to implement and monitor and enforce global rules. Because then you need an institution that is responsive and that has a degree of legitimacy. So it takes us right back to the kinds of principles that David Held writes about. In other words, it needs legitimacy because you cannot enforce rules globally by coercion alone. To do so is way too expensive. It's costly politically. It's costly economically. You need buy-in if you're going to try to enforce rules. For that reason alone, these 
global financial regulators need legitimacy. They also need to be responsive and effective, and that means they need all countries at their table so that they can understand and hear what all different countries are doing. Without that kind of responsiveness, they're always going to be getting it wrong. And those are the reasons why an international organization to which governments delegate formal authority that then enforces the rules has to be universal, however you organize its representation and decision making. And that road is a long road ahead for the two organizations that have been given this task of financial regulation. And I think the reason why I walked you through the political economy model is to say that if we don't get those institutions right, if they're not adequately representative and responsive, and if they're not adequately open and mobilizing of different coalitions of interests, they will simply be captured. And then we won't see financial regulatory reform, and then we will see another financial crisis yet bigger than the last. I'll stop there. Thanks. Well, thank you so much for uh, you know, a, a, a tremendous overview of contemporary I issues in economic governance, for a very subtle analytical account, for your graciousness and generosity about the complementarity of our approaches when you might have talked about contradiction and differences, and, uh, and for the overall, I think, optimism in some senses of your remarks, which suggests that institutional design matters, and if we overcome some of the key uh, uh, anchors which allow private interests to entrench, then there are clear ways forward. And we see signs of some of those ways forward coming through the global financial crisis, which creates stepping stones, which may or may not be built on, but clearly stepping stones um, uh, to institutionalize improved financial uh, institutional design. I think it's a very interesting and compelling argument. I, I certainly have some questions, but it's, it's not just for me. And uh, if, are you happy for us to take a few questions yeah, at once? Do, yeah. There are a lot of people here who know your work well, a lot of people here who write in similar areas, and I hope that uh, you will all speak up. And I am looking at some of you now. Robert Wade, number one. So please start, Robert. The mic coming. Thanks, Nairi. That was a that was a great talk, um, very elegantly, arg eloquently argued. Um, you take the the G7, uh, sorry, the G20, um, uh, as more or less a legitimate body to be um, in this kind of controlling position, and I understand uh, why you do. Um, if you begin from where we are then the question is how can we make sort of incremental improvements um, in the existing structure. But if you pull back um, and ask about the legitimacy of the G20 itself, then it's pretty obvious that it has a serious legitimacy problem. One is that the countries invited in were invited by the G7. It's a reflex of the G7. And secondly, countries are either in or they're out permanently. There is an alternative model, and the question is, uh, what do you make of this alternative model? Do you think that this is simply completely unrealistic to even explore it? 
And that alternative model, for example, there are, there are a number, but this is just one, is to take the existing governance, governing body of the IMF, which does have a rotating, some sort of rotational membership, um, and elevate that to the leader level so that um, twice a year or so the leaders of the states that are currently represented in the 24 seats of the IMF, they would gather and they would replace the G20. The point is that that existing body already has legitimacy as a global body. Um, and uh, it does strike me that we need to be exploring not just incremental steps from where we are, which is a reflex of the G7 world, but something looked at afresh, so to speak, a quite new model, which would meet common legitimacy standards. Can I... Um, Kevin Young. Uh, Kevin Young, uh, Department of Government. Uh, I also very much, very, very much uh, enjoyed your, uh, uh, your, your lecture. Um, again, you have, you have really, really clear thinking where I think uh, both within our discipline and in the context of uh, many public lectures I've been to, you, uh, uh, you have a lot of clear thinking where there's quite a lot of uh, hyperbole and overstatement. Um, I'm familiar with the, the model that you're, that you're describing from your book, and there's a question that always comes to mind uh, when, I, uh, when I read it, and it came to mind again, so I'd, I'd just like to put it on your, uh, on your agenda and wonder if you th th thought about it. And this is in regard to the uh, insti institutional condition of secrecy. Um, I think I, I, I generally accept your, uh, the, the, the main argument about uh, secrecy allowing for the entrenchment of capture. Um, but there's some evidence within international negotiation literature that um, increasing transparency can lead to grandstanding on, beha on behalf of the negotiators. And in a weird kind of way, when you, when you work through that, um, you can have new forms of capture, capture at the national level whereby negotiators that are negotiating with each other at the international level, because of transparency, because there's an audience, uh, now have to be very, very bombastic, uh, now have to uh, effectively appease their domestic publics, whereas before they could meet in secret with their brethren at the international level. I wonder if you've put any thought into the, the costs of changing the situation of, of, of secrecy that we have at the international level uh, because of that. Second, and very, very briefly, this is just another thought, one of you th thought of. Um, I like your idea of sort of what, what, spe what seems to me to be a, a, a promoting the notion of countervailing power uh, at the global level when these uh, global banking regulations are negotiated, um, of mobilizing a new, uh, new forms of coalitions. Um, but I wonder if you put any thought into a, a alternative strategy, which is to actually just be better regulate our public officials rather than trying to mobilize a new kind of coalition of social forces, um, to actually focus attention on the fact that regulators' powers, uh, even when they're negotiating at the international level, ultimately is, uh, is still domestic. Uh, so those are the two issues I'd, I'd, I'd like to hear your reflection on. Just looking for hands. Yes, the lady over there in the middle, standing up. Hello, and thank you for uh, your very interesting lecture. My name is Sophie, and I'm a master's student here in international political economy. I have two questions for you. Um, 
Firstly, uh, we've witnessed increased liberalization in the financial sector over the past few decades. And I was wondering, um, do you think Basel III is going to be enough to uh, rein in back those uh, uh, commercial banks? And um, are banks going to comply with Basel III if they consider it's not in their interest? And my second question would be, um, do you think we're seeing um, within international economic organization genuine cooperation and willingness to work together of countries or is it just a fight for national interest as we've seen with, uh, for instance, uh, the U.S. Um, keeping its voting rights within the IMF? Thank you. Great questions. We've got a, you know, good. It's several people now. I'll just ask the gentleman over here, and then I think I'll stop after the fifth, fourth question because they're quite meaty questions. And I think, uh, and then we'll come back. There'll be plenty of time to come back to the audience. Yes. Hi, I'm Stefano Pagliari from International Relations Department at Tennessee. Um, I have a question regarding to uh, countervailing collisions. You have mentioned that we need to bring to the table corporate customers uh, in order to have good regulation. Uh, what I've seen during this crisis is that corporations, in particular big corporations, have mobilized massively on regulatory debates, but the kind of direction where they push regulation is not what you expected. Uh, you had big corporations trying to water down derivatives regulation, you have pension funds trying to water down hedge fund regulation, you have the Church of England trying to water down hedge fund regulation. Uh, I'm a little more skeptical to the extent that uh, there are out there um, powerful corporate actors with the capacity and the in incentive to mobilize, but which are, who, who, have, who do not have a very uh, close interest to uh, the financial sector's interest. Mm -hmm. uh, probably a countervailing coalition right now are uh, populist pressures, voters uh, who demand uh, regulation, but we know that uh, that's usually not a good recipe for good regulation. Over to you. Right, great questions. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, let me start with this um, countervailing coalitions, which is the question on this side of the room, <laughs> I think, from Kevin and is it Nils? No. Stefan. Stefan, sorry. Um, so, um, to, to make clear why, why, in the end, I opt for the countervailing coalitions view. So one question was, why not just regulate our public regulators better? So why not get public regulators to do their job? And there, when you go in and you look empirically at the regulators, what you find is that they are so vastly um, under-resourced, under-expert, um, that, that to regulate the financial services sector, which is so both, which has such massive resources, including resources to marshal information and field it, which has such massive expertise, which very few regulators have, and that's why regulatory bodies tend to have to hire people from the financial services sector, and why young, ambitious financial services sector um, officials want to work for the regulator because it increases their salary premium when they go back to the private sector. So you do get a revolving door effect for which there is quite a clear incentive on both sides. The regulators need the expertise. The bankers need to know what the regulators are doing and thinking. Um, 
So the combination of the imbalance of expertise, of resources and of incentives, and the incentives are also terribly important, because regulate, when we say regulate the regulators, why did nobody regulate the regulators before the crisis? Right? I mean, there were regulations that could have, they could have already been enforcing. And we had those conditions, which some called perfect storm, that nobody wanted to take the punch bowl away from the party. So massive, poor quality mortgages were popular among politicians, presiding over an era where everybody could buy their houses. They were popular among consumers with great access to credit. They were popular with the banks, a hugely profitable line of business. So who was going to say, stop? And what the regulators that were in power say is that they were under pressure by all three groups not to stop the party. So when I say the incentive problem is difficult, it really is difficult. What incentive does a regulator? And we did quite a lot of work looking at the kind of micro incentives for the regulator. So even looking at the language that um, the different sectors we look at in our book on regulation use to describe regulators, because those regulators live in that world. And when they do try to regulate, they're constantly described as stupid, foolish, not the sharpest tool in the, you know, just not understanding, not understanding the private sector, not understanding how to unleash opportunity. There's a huge, and in our interviews with regulators, that actually was quite an important feature of a kind of negative incentive in which they work. So my question is, given all of that, how do we then, if we take our political systems as given, how do we then countervail the power of a sector that's so large. Now I have to say that some of my central bank friends say the problem is the financial sector is simply too large. The institutions are simply too large. That if you look at the campaign lobbying and contributions figures in the United States, you realize nobody can countervail the financial services sector. They're putting billions into shaping congressional competitions, they're putting billions into shaping through direct lobbying of people who are actually in office. Nobody can countervail them. So the, to me, where that takes you is either you ban the big banks, you, make, you, you have a rule that financial services firms have to be small, which is very, very difficult, and or you've got to obviously strengthen the regulators but if you're going to really try to do that, you're going to have to work towards a completely different system. You're going to have to have a much more state-led capitalist system. Or, working with the grain of the system that we have, you have to think of countervailing coalitions. So to me, there's not, there's not, really you're going to have to work in one of those sectors. I think the countervailing coalitions is one that's not adequately explored, about how you can use a combination of regulation and institutions to actually help those coalitions mobilize around an issue. So, um, and how you can use, I haven't talked about it tonight, but how you can use legal and material stakes in issues to give one part of industry a material stake in enforcing regulation against another part. Because the, the idea is that what you bring to the regulatory exercise is all the resources, information, expertise, and power of the private sector in, in economies where the private sector has great power. So that's, that was the countervailing, um, that, that's why I end up, Stefan, with countervailing coalitions. Um, 
Sophie asked me about um, will banks comply with Basel III. So at the risk of being a little bit flip, I mean, it seems to me that because of this long transition period, they don't have to do anything for quite a number of years, the likelihood is that either we'll have a crisis before they're adequately capitalized, in which case we're going to have to bail them out again, or if we don't have a crisis, another four years of high profitability with no regulation will put them in a very powerful position to say, look, we really don't need the new standards. We really do have clever instruments this time that mean that we're not as risky as we used to be and that they'll probably win that argument. So I think it's a very important, there's, a very, there's a, a very important political sort of battle to be played out. You asked me if governments are genuinely cooperating or if they're just fighting for their national interest. And I guess I'm one of those people that thinks that genuine cooperation is founded on national interest. Um, and that that's the essence of international coordination, which is why at the beginning of the lecture I defined the cooperation I was talking about as areas where no one government can achieve its goal without getting other governments to play by a similar set of rules or to coordinate in some way. So I don't see them as in opposition. When you started asking your first question, Sophie, I thought you were asking a slightly different question. You said, will there be increasing liberalization in the financial sector? And let me just say in respect of that, that there's now a really sharp question for emerging economies about what to do with financial liberalization. Some of them had, so if you take India, China, and South Africa, each had begun slowly to liberalize. And it's not clear what the liberalization pathway should now be. It's not that they don't want to, because there are advantages to doing certain kinds of liberalization. But that whole policy pathway is now very unclear for those emerging economies that were thinking about liberalizing. Um, I think the other question is, is back to um, Robert and the G20. And it's interesting, Robert, that you put the question that I see the G20 as legitimate in its controlling role. And actually, my argument was that it doesn't have a controlling role. My argument is that the G20 is setting an agenda and it's a conductor of an orchestra. But what the G20 cannot do is actually implement. It can't actually write authoritative rules and it cannot implement authoritative rules, which is why every G20 communique is telling an international organization to do something. But when you tell the IMF to do something, it then has to do it through its board. And, and in doing it through its board, it has to use the fully representative structure. Now, as you know, I think there are some problems with that representative structure, but it, nevertheless, it has to use the formal structure of the organization. Why I think it would be disastrous to, to use the IMF structure to structure the G20 lies in exactly what you said. You said twice a year they could meet. But guess what? When you meet twice a year, it's never when there's a crisis. It's like it's the problem with the United Nations General Assembly. You know, it meets for four months of the year, and that's not when the crises happen. A crisis committee is something that is pulled together ad hoc that can respond to a crisis because there's a capacity to move immediately. No government in the world will delegate power to an ad hoc group that can meet instantly. And that's the difference. 
You need a crisis committee that can, that can meet very quickly, but it will never have authority to make authoritative rules. And that, to me, is the complementarity between something like the G20, which does need to be more representative, I think, in order to be more effective, and a formal international organization. But I think it's really important to have clarity about the very different roles that they're playing and the way in which they're, they're complementary. We have uh, uh, 15 more minutes, so I'd be delighted to take uh, more questions. I have two of my own I want to put at some point, but uh, let's just, let's try, we can keep them fairly brief. Let's start with the lady at the front here. Fairly brief, and then we can accumulate some issues. Yes, uh, Nalima Gulrajani, Destin and Government um, Departments. I'd like to know whether you see any scope within the G20 for a countervailing body um, to the Development Assistance Committee emerging, one that could be a coordinator of development assistance, um, both traditional donors and emerging donors, because it strikes me that increasingly on the ground it's a lack of coordination across those two particular groups that's a real impediment to aid effectiveness. So could the G20 provide a stimulus for some new coordinating body in development? Yes, and uh, yes, lady there on the right. We're moving up. Thank you for your wonderful uh, lecture. Uh, I'm a student uh, from International History Department. My name is Shirley. Uh, I done my, def uh, my thesis at Peking University about IMF's quota reform and Chinese uh, policy. And I uh, just wonder, um, uh, and uh, the, this spring, the IMF and the World Bank Summit, uh, China's quota share and uh, World Bank uh, has raised from uh, two 0.77% to 4.22%. Uh, so it's a very, uh, very dramatic, uh, big raise and the MF uh, World Bank share. But uh, China's quota and the well and the emerging economies quota share and the MF uh, seemed to like uh, to be difficult because the, uh, because I I don't know. Um, uh, because it's too complicated to uh, to discover why um, uh, why World Bank seemed to be smooth to reform uh, the quota share, but uh, IMF seemed very difficult than uh, than the World Bank. And my second question is: uh, Is there make any substantial difference for the emerging economic to increase the quota share uh, for the glo global economy? Because uh, the United States was the vital uh, to to the whole economic branches. So maybe there is not so substantial uh, difference if the for the emerging economy to raise up their share uh, and uh, the global economy. So, uh, thank you. Moving up, yes. Good evening. My name is Joe Mitchell. I'm just interested in open government. Um, you mentioned that the IMF has become more transparent and contrasted it with the BIS and FSB. What was this, what's the difference? What was driving mm -hmm. the IMF to become more transparent? Yeah. And what isn't with those other two? Yeah. Yeah. At the top there. Thank you for this wonderful presentation. My name is Khaled from uh, European Studies. 
Actually, my question is going to be about the legitimacy of these international organizations such as IMF and World Bank. So if IMF and World Bank, if you want to see more cooperation with, uh, from these emerging economies such as China or Brazil or India or Turkey, how we can still keep this big representation of European countries in IMF and also like American and also how 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 can we how how are you going to say to the world that the head of IMF is always going to be a European and the head of World Bank is always going to be an American located in the in the American soil and at the same time expect uh, these emerging uh, countries to uh, to uh, to abide by the rules set by those organizations. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Anyone bursting to answer the point? Yes. Lady, just then, be the final question. Thank you for the opportunity. My name is Vivi. I'm from Indonesia. And I'm studying at the UCL. Uh, and I'm working for the ministry in Indonesia. So my question will be from the point of view of uh, kind of Indonesian government. So, uh, as we know that Indonesia is recently accepted as a member of G20, and uh, precisely as you mentioned that uh, the emerging countries like uh, want to set an agenda to talk about the changing view on development. And yeah, uh, in a very general level, Indonesia's intention to be uh, the member of G20 is like becoming the bridge builder between the developing and the developed nations. And uh, you've mentioned about uh, improving the responsiveness and legitimacy of these uh, uh, international institutions. And my question would be, uh, what do you advise? What is the in- most important advice or suggestion for country like Indonesia, or you mentioned South Korea, to uh, what is it? To bring uh, their uh, aspiration into the forum, and to uh, if I can make my own what is it word to make this institution more uh, democratic and responsive. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you just in conclusion two more slightly more general questions since you've been asked a lot of I think really excellent questions about the structure of your argument and some of the counterpoints that could be made. Let me ask a few more general questions about the analytic terms of reference. One slightly cheeky and light-hearted and the other a bit more serious. Uh, um, Of course institutions matter and they matter greatly and institutional design uh, matters and I think your argument is an elegant testimony to that in, in, in many respects. But a couple of us here were having drinks recently with some traders from uh, the City of London and uh, investors. And uh, I asked them, you know, what has changed after this two years has gone past? What has changed for you? This gentleman raised his glass, sipped his champagne, and said, absolutely nothing. <laughs> the car is on the road steaming, and we aren't back in business. And in that sense, I wonder how far institutions matter. And wasn't Marx right? That the, executive, the, exec, the state is but an executive committee for managing the common affairs of the bourgeoisie, or as he says in the 18th, the Brumaire, the dominant fraction. And in this case, aren't state institutions of the most powerful Western economies, the United States and the UK, and the European economies hostage in some senses to the oversized, overblown financial sector and their interests. 
and that there's a tragedy in motion here that politics maybe are not enough to put enough sand in those wheels. That's the one question. The other one, and it's a slightly cheeky question, the other one is, uh, is about your analysis, which focuses rightly and obviously on the financial sector. But I just wonder whether the argument about what works and doesn't work in the financial sector can just be sui generis to that sector. Because we see across sectors parallel problems in the international negotiations. The Doha trade round stalled, financial regulatory reforms stalled, climate change negotiations stalled, nuclear proliferation discussions stalling, and so on and so forth. None of these are sui generis. The one thing you can't say about Copenhagen is what happened just in Copenhagen, because the problems of Copenhagen aren't just sui generis. Across the board, something is going on. And I just wonder, what do you think that is? Is it to do with a shift, actually, in the global balance of power across the world, which makes it clear that our 1945 institutions are weak and weakening, that settlement is increasingly uh, partial, one-sided, redundant in the face of the shifts in the balance of power? Is it that the war on terror weakened these institutions fundamentally, and they haven't recovered from that, as some people argue? Or is it that actually, because the 45 settlement is breaking up in some ways, and we don't quite know what institutions to put in its place, or that there isn't yet a coalition to put them in their place, we're seeing a growing sort of regionalization and fragmentation of political uh, uh, power? I'm not sure what the answer to this question is, but I thought I'd ask you. Right. You. OK. Um, well, let me start with that one, because it's the one that's fresh in, in your minds. All these international negotiations are stalled. Um, so what does that tell us? So to me, it tells us something very clearly, which is that international cooperation is really difficult. Now, I would argue that international cooperation should be difficult. When I vote for a member of parliament, or when I play a role in national elections that elect a government, I don't then expect that government to go and give away all the authority to make decisions which I have elected them to make to some international body or to some international organization or in some international cooperation agreement. There are both normative and practical reasons why international cooperation is genuinely difficult. So I think we shouldn't expect international cooperation to produce instant, clear results. But at the same time, if you say, well, when then does it, is it futile? Is it completely futile? I think the clear answer is no, because what we do see where, where the work has gone, and it takes a long time. In, in the World Health Organization, it took decades to create an organization, cooperation attempts began in the late 19th century, and it took decades to get commonly agreed rules, um, which form the basis, for example, of the global cooperation on avian flu that we saw in operation, or on H1N1, where you've got a serious risk with an infectious pandemic that the global economy will come to a halt, or that countries will pretend that they have no infection and infect all other countries because of interdependence. I mean, there's lots of risks. And yet, actually, 
to quite a high degree a globally agreed system of monitoring and cooperation is working and we've seen it work already a couple of times. Likewise, in the very first phase of this crisis, what we saw was a coordinated response which was only possible because there had been 10 years of G20 finance ministers meeting in the 10 years previously. Now you could look at those 10 years of G20 meetings and say, as I said five minutes ago, oh, they were quite successful for the first two years, but then what were they doing? They were sitting around a table talking about shared experiences of globalization. Actually, they were building social capital. And that proved to be quite effective in the face of the financial crisis. It meant that there was an institutional form to which they could turn to seek cooperation in a crisis. Similarly, the other example I mentioned in my talk, the, the IMF's international monetary in the consultations, the multilateral consultations, wasn't very good, wasn't very effective, but actually they created a form which now countries can turn to to seek solutions, not in a grandstanding way, but in a quiet, purposeful way, because they each have an interest in a shared outcome from it. So, you know, your other question, um, David, your flip you one, resist it. which is really important, what's changed? Has anything changed? Um, I, I have found it very depressing talking to the world's main central bank governors in Washington because they were saying the same thing but with significantly less happiness than the traders. And think about the politics of this. I mean, it was pretty depressing when the politician corruption scandals rippled across the British press to find that on the front page of broadsheet newspapers there was the moral indignity about a red leather sofa that a politician had paid £1,500 for. And then buried on page six was the news that the total cost of the public sector bailout of banks had risen to £800 billion. And I think there's a sort of, you know, there's a psychological aspect to that. We all know what a red sofa looks like. And we all think, oh, I'd like that one, but I can't afford it. Why should they have it just because they're an MP? Whereas none of us thinks, gosh, I wouldn't mind 800 billion pounds. I mean, it's, it's too far beyond what we imagine we might be able to spend, even on a really good shopping day. So, so there's a sort of, there is... But that's why it's a serious question for those of us who do political science, right, and political economy. That's why it's a serious question, because we actually have to think, what is it that institutions can do? And my answer is that institutions can shape the way that people mobilize. One, just one last example of what I'm saying here. The fact of the G20 and the fact that the G7, the industrialized country club, which lies at the heart of the G20, insisted on keeping on meeting as the G7, even though the G20 now existed, which put the others at a disadvantage because they weren't part of the core meetings. What they did was catalyze the non-G7 G20 into forming their own meetings. Right, so we began to see the BRICS having their separate meetings and forging their own agenda. That's just an example of the way the institutional form, the fact that it's the G20 that brought those emerging economies together in that meeting room even though they then became aware that they were being treated differently to the G7, was itself a catalyst 
for them to start organising and bringing their own agenda to the table. So institutional forms matter. It's really difficult international cooperation, but you know, obviously, I'm a believer that you know it, it can take place, and that actually, as intellectuals and as scholars, we can help it happen better by thinking clearly through what kinds of institutional designs can actually produce the politics that make the objectives of these organisations possible. So I'd like to end on that optimistic note. <laughs> Do you want to yes, pick up some of those other remaining questions? Or what the, were the other ones? Oh, oh, right, yes. sorry, I forgot. Uh, yes, but, but I had those other questions. We should finish okay, uh, well, in, 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 so in three minutes. Shirley asked me about the difference between the pace of reform in the fund and bank, and they are sort of driving each other in a way. I mean, I don't think there is a huge difference in pace. It was in, the IMF simply had to move faster because it needed the money of emerging economies more desperately in the face of the crisis. But the World Bank is shadowing it. There's a much deeper answer, which is why on earth do they have the same kind of structure anyway? But I don't think we've got time to go into that. Um, but that's a very good question. Um, what, drove, um, what drove the IMF to become more transparent, one of you asked, which is a great question, because there I think the fund did follow the bank. What drove the World Bank to become more transparent? was the fact that its main shareholders, main industrialised governments, started depriving it of funding, and it started needing relationships with NGOs in order to push for a new case for why industrialised governments should give it funding. You can see I, I go to the balance sheet of an organisation to sort of work out where the politics of it comes. There's a lot of people that would say it was because of the campaigns and so forth. Yes, they made a difference, but actually it was also a balance sheet issue. And that hit the fund as well. So that what we saw in the 1990s, late 1990s, beginning of um, um, the last 10 years, was the, until the crisis, was the fund becoming less and less relevant, more and more marginal. And the fund needing to start doing outreach. It lost two-thirds of its income because it relied on, for, all, for almost all of its income, it relied on borrowers borrowing money from it and paying it. So it, it relied on its fee-paying clients. When it lost those fee-paying clients, it had to start really seriously doing outreach. And that's part of why in industrialised countries it needed to start talking to potential allies that would support more funding for it, a new income model for it. And in emerging economies it had to start you know, speaking to them in a new tone. Of course the financial crisis has played an interesting um, twist into that trajectory um, but it was a good question and then finally the headship uh, it matters it matters who's head and I'm just so sick of watching all of these meetings produce a yet another statement that the headship will be meritocratically chosen the word on the street is that yet again the United States and the Europeans have agreed that their formal statement would say that the headship will be meritocratically chosen and they will continue each to appoint an American World Bank president and a European um, um, managing director. What's interesting, though, is, that, is the Chinese approach to this. I think it's very interesting that the Chinese now have a former official, very senior official, as the chief economist in the World Bank, in Justin Yifulin, and Zhu Min as one of the new senior advisors to the managing director in the IMF. And there's an interesting question about how much that much quieter role that a country can play can actually influence the way the institution is working. So I think that's an interesting throwback on Indonesia and what Indonesia can do. There I would go to the, the, the work that I did with my colleagues on networks and say that Indonesia needs to form networks outside of the G20 that don't include G20 members 
in order to use a double politics of both the networks inside it and networks outside of it. And then it can both increase its voice, but also be a voice for other, for other countries. Uh, so it just remains for me, I mean, to thank you again for your extremely analytical uh, 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 lecture, with, you know, delivered with extraordinary clarity on, on, on many pressing and complex issues, but also your optimism, in the sense. You may distinguish this analytical approach, as it were, from a normative approach, but there is a sort of somewhere a normative optimism <laughs> that clarity of analysis and examination of conditions can give rise to better institutional design, which we can clearly specify on a number of criteria. I mean, I, it, you know, a lecture on these topics doesn't come better. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Thank you.